I used to be legit. In fact, I was too legit. I was too legit to quit. But now I'm not legit. I'm unlegit. And for that reason, I must quit. Hello, friends, and welcome along to another thrill ride of an episode of your favourite movie podcast, Have You Seen This? Guiding me through this shitstorm, as always, the honey rider and hot lips O'Houlihan of the cinematic universe. <laughs> Bring there, done that. And there's been a Mercer. It's Paul and Benji. Hi, guys. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? How's everyone? Are we all all right? I take Very it by that time. subdued quote that the trilogy of quotes that you had on the last three episodes have now come to an end. It has come to an end, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it's your Lord of the Rings extended edition. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And of course, another podcast brings another great guest. And this week, that guest takes the shape of Paul Sweeney. Paul, so great to see you. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm very well, well as well as we can be in this uh, turbulent times but yeah very well and very excited to be here talking about films and uh, what we do best yeah so everyone is present and accounted for and that means we can crack on so we ended the last podcast with a question so of course we start this one with the same question and that was how did alfred hitchcock control public screenings of his 1960s masterpiece psycho and why so matt bayliss and greg bird commented on the facebook post so matt guessed that cinemas had to agree to set start times and rules of entry and Greg guests at set start times and no entry after the movie had started. Steve Dempster did get in touch with the pod as well to say that no latecomers were allowed in the entrance of the screening and he brought all of the available copies of the book to prevent spoilers from leaking. He did. And he printed a huge standee for outside the front of the cinemas. He had this big standee that had him and it had this whole thing about don't go in you're not going to be allowed in until the film starts and you can't know admittance afterwards and you can't come out and it's all for your enjoyment of psycho and it was all to do with obviously her dying off early so i don't know about breen but i had absolutely no idea so i wasn't even gonna guess <laughs> yeah no I, it's a rough idea i mean i didn't know the necessarily the details but i know back in the day cinemas you could wander in and out not like it is now where you know you go in to watch the, from the you know the start of the ads uh, through to the end credits and then you leave and then the next group go in and uh, yeah i thought it was to do with hitchcock just yeah insisting that people were there for the duration to start to the end of the film and no wandering in and out yeah pretty much i mean no point for tristy and cooper this week whose answer of they gave out shower curtains is wildly incorrect <laughs> <laughs> paul sweeney you are absolutely correct so alfred hitchcock sent records to every theater playing psycho with audio messages playing in all public spaces telling the audience that the movie is about to begin and that nobody would be allowed entrance into the auditorium even one minute after the film started. And yeah, the, the standee he sent to the cinemas was a, an image of himself. It read, it is required that you see Psycho from the very beginning. The manager of this theatre has been instructed at the risk of his own life not to admit to the theatre any persons after the picture starts. Any spurious attempts to enter by side doors, fire escapes, ventilating shafts will be met by force. And at the bottom, it's got Alfred Hitchcock's signature on there. That's wonderful. It's brilliant. So firstly, he did it because he genuinely didn't want anyone to miss a second of what he knew was going to be one of his masterpieces. And secondly, the language and stuff he uses, it was all to build fear and anxiety before anyone even set foot inside the auditorium. So a wonderful bit of marketing back there from the 60s. So well, I'm not sure. I think you won that, Hammond. Did you win that one? I think so. I think that's a point. Well, yeah, yeah, I'll take the point there. You'll take the point. It's very kind of you. Yeah. You've got two points to our half point so far. Off to a flying start in 2021. <laughs> simply saying that opinions are 
Super. On to our regular show starter then, which is our big picks from the small screen. A highlight of two or three things we've watched or streamed outside of our two films in review. And we like to start with our guest. So, Paul. What's been keeping you entertained during lockdown three? There's a couple of films I've been watching, but nothing of any particular note. I've kind of watched a lot more TV programs. I think the lockdown's kind of got us all in that position of uncomfortableness where you can't relax and watch a film. That's certainly for me. So I find TV stuff is a lot better because you can kind of watch it in little chunks and go and wander around your garden and pretend you've (laughs) got an actual life. So I've just finished watching two programs of Hulu, which I think are about to come to Disney Plus next week. One's called Love, Victor, which is the spin-off or continuation of the film Love, Simon, which was released by Fox three years ago, I believe. And Love, Victor is the story of Victor, who's stuck in, he's gay, but he doesn't want to come out. And the whole Love, Simon film, if you haven't seen that, he's kind of has this whole film about him coming out and talking online with someone who, who he can talk to and actually relate to. And then it it's a bit like a teen comedy romance, 90s kind of one of those type of films, bring it on type thing. And Love, Victor kind of carries the story on from there with another guy who then looks up to Simon as, oh my God, you know, he did it, I can do it. And actually it's such a sweet little TV programme it's, it's very funny it's very charming it's not offensive it's not banging in your face about lgbt rights it's it's just a really sweet program that you kind of want to binge the whole lot of so i, I kind of watched that if you haven't seen love simon i think you will should because i really uh, want to see it i'm hoping that it will drop on disney with uh yeah. with all that content that fox are putting on there yeah i, I think it will because it is incredible film it's such a feel-good inoffensive film that just kind of ticks along and you just get so invested in the characters and it's just brilliant i've got a lot i can talk about lgbt content but that's probably going to take another three podcasts because <laughs> <to fill laughs> i have lots of thoughts on that and what they do and don't do right mostly do wrong but uh, love simon actually hit the nail on the head for me maybe you should watch love simon as one of your review films love to hear what you have to say about that ben nice mm. I saw Hellstrom, which is the other Marvel spin-off that is in on Hulu. I'm pretty sure this is coming to Disney Plus next week. It's if it didn't have the Marvel logo on it, you wouldn't guess it was a Marvel product. It's one of my most obscure Marvel characters who I like, Damon Hellstrom, who's actually the son of Satan. But because it's Disney and because it's nowadays, they can't mention the devil or Satan or anything like that. So he's just <laughs> called Hellstrom. He's like a psychic paranormal kind of guy who actually is the son of Satan and has paranormal like powers, which is actually quite good. It was kind of ticked along. They've cancelled it. They've not gotten a second series, which is a real shame because it kind of just hit its stride at the end. As most of these programs do, you wait eight episodes and you think, Jesus Christ, will you just hurry up? And by the end of it, you're like, oh, I can see where this is going now. Oh, it's been cancelled. What a shame. So that was really good. And the last one I saw is It's a Sin, which is Russell T. Davis' program on Channel 4. Yeah, I've heard that's really good. He is just a powerhouse of talent, that man. Doctor Who aside and Queer as Folk and Cucumber, etc. But It's a Sin is just flawless in what it does and I have to say Ollie Alexander who I'm not a massive fan of is incredible as the lead if you haven't watched it watch it I dare you not to cry Keely Hawks is just incredible in it as one of the mothers trying to pretend her son's not gay and going through the AIDS crisis etc but uh, it was really groundbreaking and I remember as a kid growing up in the 80s with all these thoughts inside my head about coming out etc you probably all remember the AIDS tombstone that used to land on the tv screen so that used to scare the absolute bejesus out of me when i was a kid because i'd come home thinking oh i'm different i'm different everyone's telling me i'm different not really understanding who i was and then i get this message on the telly saying you're gonna die and uh, that was absolutely terrifying which messed my head up for a good decade at least from that and it's a sin kind of has all of that in it which is and it was just really it felt like a personal message to a lot of people involved and i think it was actually i think he wrote it about a lot of his friends who died in the 80s etc so yes that's kind of what i've been watching all uh, pretty doom and gloom actually i don't know why i'm watching that. <laughs> <laughs> suits the mood of lockdown three nicely it does i mean love love victor isn't isn't doom and gloom at all it's a lovely heartfelt like teen program so good stuff i finally got around to watching just mercy where the michael b jordan 
Jamie Foxx movie is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah I, like I, I absolutely loved it. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Also, what TV series called Ted Lasso about a American sort of second tier American football coach coming to coach an English Premier League football team with having no understanding whatsoever of soccer, as you would call it. It's fantastic. Mm. It genuinely laugh out loud. Funny. It's touching. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. It made me actually invest in a fake football team and, <laughs> and how they were doing in the league. Bear in mind, I don't really have any interest in, in football at all anymore. And then finally, the other TV show that I've been watching, it's an American TV show called Kingdom, and it's about a MMA gym in LA. And it's just about Frank Grillo's character who owns it, his two sons that fight, and just really what happens in their lives and all the people surrounding them. It's not a, about fighting as such, although there are really well choreographed MMA fights in it. It's more about people dealing with life and all the problems. It's a properly adult show. It's very violent. It's very sweary. It's very sexy in places. Nice one. Awesome. Nice. So I'm trying to knock off a, a few things I should watch on my bucket list. And I've got round to Rashomon, 1950, Akira Kurosawa. No. Now, I appreciate this is a cinematic classic and I'm glad to have it ticked off the list. But I, I don't know, this really dragged for a 90 minute feature. I did feel the time really stretched in this. If people don't know, Rushman is the film with the unreliable narrator. You know, one of the most famous examples, or if not the first example, of uh, you know a diff an event from different perspectives. So you get different characters contradicting versions of events. I was just expecting a, a, maybe a greater difference between the the recollections of the different. So it's a murder from different perspectives, and I was maybe expecting there to be a bit of a, a variance between them, but they're all kind of very similar. Also, I don't know if you guys have seen it recently, but the bandit and the wife in this have the most piercing laugh, and it's so high in. The mix it's like nails on a blackboard it really grated as I, as I was watching it i think you know it has some striking imagery the final message that it has that you go away with is great but i don't know i, I preferred some of his other stuff to be honest so it's not really um yeah up there for me so i'm having a bit of a well i had a bit of a jeff nichols a retrospective so jeff nichols is the director responsible for things like mud with uh, matthew mcconaughey from a few years ago he did midnight special more recently and loving was i think was his last film which i, I haven't actually caught up with yet so i watched take shelter midnight special and mud and I'd never seen Take Shelter before. That was the one that, of the three films I hadn't seen before. And it's such a shame I didn't get to it earlier because it is flawless. Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain are on top form in this, brilliantly judging how to portray a story of what essentially constitutes as prophecy, I guess, in the 21st century. Like Shannon's character has these premonitions about the end of the world. Now, is he genuinely having them or is it linked to the mental illness in his family? Like the, it's an interesting concept. And I think it struggles line really well, like really rooting it in reality as it sort of plays out. And the visions he has are just horrific. They've got a really great sort of horror flair to them and it uses CGI so sparingly. So it's, it's dated extremely well. It's on Amazon Prime now for free. I cannot recommend it enough. It was the absolute best of, of those three films I watched. And then finally, I watched, uh, or rewatched rather, A Single Man 2009, Tom Ford's first foray into directing. It's bloody gorgeous. Ford's approach is to wash the screen of colour so that when first character starts to connect with someone or he has memories of his recently departed partner, it, the, the sort of the colour flushes back in. And it's, it's a simple technique and it's probably done a thousand times in, in other films but it's so beautiful in this Firth is on another level his portrayal of a man sort of drowning in grief is almost too much to bear but rather than emotionally explode it helps his character's reaction it's just methodically go about essentially planning his last day on earth because he plans at the end of the day to basically commit suicide because he can't carry on without his partner so he goes around outly attempting to connect with people you're having these really touching 
perfectly judged conversations with strangers or the people in his life like Julianne Moore who is absolutely fabulous in the film it's so so good I, I've forgotten just how brilliant it is so yeah I really really enjoyed re-watching that well as always following you Ben I'm going to bring this crashing right down I'm going to lower <laughs> the bar lower than I've ever lowered the bar would you be surprised to know so I've, I've I rewatched a lot of stuff orphan which i really like the departed baby driver these kind of just stuff just keep me going but three things i'd not seen before and certainly there isn't a highbrow among them so i apologize for this in (laughs) advance so i started with 2016 the young offenders which is the irish film set around the true story of all the cocaine washing up on an irish shoreline and two lovable rogues steal bikes and cycle 160 kilometers to try and find a seven million euro bale of cocaine to change their lives really good actually the two main characters um, are brilliant and it's a real throwback to those really awkward teenage days that we somehow survived and looking back at this i've got no idea how we survived those teenage years probably the the worst of the bunch but still pretty good is a film called bad words that was directed by and starring jason count the winks bateman this was hilarious but in a very different way some Mm. very harsh and definitely some very racially questionable humor in this that i'm not sure would really stand up today even though it was only a few years ago but still if you're after something that you don't need to pay any attention to at all and just chuckle bateman plays a character who is intentionally very horrible and gives no shit and that's just fine by me and then finally from 2020 uh, i watched blithe spirit and this took me by complete surprise. Originally an old coward film, it appears to have been remade multiple times. This one starring Leslie Mann, Isla Fisher, Dan Stevens again, making his 100th appearance this year. I thought this was brilliant, but Sweeney, you're shaking your head. What's wrong with this? It looked glorious. The colour and the stylish of it, and Dan Stevens is Dan Stevens, Leslie Mann's brilliant, and Isla Fisher, just terrible. Uh, yeah. Watch the original. Watch the original. So much better. Or better still, watch it on stage. Yeah. It's a brilliant play. <laughs> <laughs> When will I ever get the chance to watch anything on stage? I was going to say, that's not really an option right now. (laughs) Well, absolutely. The original is such a, oh, it's just a brilliant, brilliant film. Um, The bland spirit, am I right? (laughs) 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 I rang my own bell because that was great and you're all heathens. I I smiled. (laughs) In the absence of me seeing the original, I thought this was very good. So I will go back and watch the Noel Coward version because I thought this was funny. There we go. Some fun things, some recommendations there from everyone apart from me because you, you know, you don't like anything that I watch, but that's fine. Preview time. highlights from some of our current West End attractions. Moving on then to a regular feature, our box office refund, where Mercer is going to try and bring us some news. What have you got for us, Ben? Right, so as Three Degrees famously sung in 1975, when will we see Black Widow again? It's been two (laughs) years nearly since Endgame. And of course, the Black Widow film was on track to theatrically release last year. But as Disney watches the pandemic very carefully, they're watching it very carefully, guys, we may be on course for another slip. Disney CEO Bob Chapek said on February 11th that Black Widow remained on track for your theatrically. So that is May the 7th in the US and UK but warned the disruptive nature of the pandemic meant we will be watching and they've said very very carefully <laughs> um, oh, it's, <laughs> it's a release model that's being fought by Feige, Kevin Feige king of all things Marvel who according to Variety is absolutely opposed to a hybrid rollout, a sort of day and date release in both theatres and on a streaming platform like Warner Brothers are doing with their HBO Max release model so this means that the Marvel tempo will likely be delayed again. Variety described the theatrical situation as a game of chicken with Disney's Black Widow and Universal's Fast and 
Furious 9 both likely to move from their May releases. It's just a matter of which one is going to blink first. It's a really bland game of stare. Yes, it's like a really boring staring contest, playing with everyone's livelihoods in the theatrical exhibition industry. We're all sitting waiting for the 22nd of Feb to find out what the government are going to announce. Just looking at the way things are going whilst the jabs are going into people's arms at a regular rate in the UK. It's not the same everywhere else in the world. Film releases aren't about just what's happening in the UK. Obviously, the American market is a big part of that as well, particularly with the releases that we're talking about, unfortunately. So film's probably going to get pushed back again. We're just playing exactly the same game that we've been playing every single time we chat about this. It's just a waiting game to see what the government say next and see how far back they're going to push the lockdown. I can imagine that most distributors are secretly following the James Bond model of we don't want to release anything unless we can get 100% capacity. Nobody's going to want to release into 50% auditoriums, 40% auditoriums. They're going to want to wait now until everything is open. There's no distancing restrictions in cinemas and unfortunately we're probably looking at the back end of the summer yeah, mm, yeah. i kind of sit on the fence on the argument because i work with uh, with what i do with distributors and exhibitors so i can kind of sympathize with both sides and it's it's money it's all down to money and it always is it's whole business is down to money i've got a lot of the cinemas in europe i deal with in luxembourg they're all open poland they're open for two weeks but on 50 percent capacity and so i've had loads of these guys reaching out to me for some of the foreign language films I do and saying, oh, have you got, you know, have you got anything because we need to fill, fill our cinemas? And, and we don't because the pure fact of it is that the analysis of it for 50% capacity just it means you're just never going to make, it's actually going to cost us money as a distributor mm-hmm. to release a film. I don't think I appreciated fully when I was in the exhibition was the costs involved in releasing a film. Mm. So it's not just about, you know, oh, here's a drive of a film, pay for that. You know, you've got VPF costs, you've got marketing costs, you've got license fees that you have to break down per site. And when you're only getting fixed term percentage back from the box office, the calculations on it you just think generally I could just play in four cinemas because they're the ones that I'm making profit from and they're the ones paying for the other release of you know the other 50 screens so to speak mm. so it's a real I mean there is a big argument to say Universal and Disney can kind of afford to take a bit of a hit but you know even they've got overheads and and, and people involved in those films yeah but, uh, so I kind of I do sit on the fence on it a little bit and I sympathize with both sides I think there's been some wrong calls made yes. in the last six months but I'm not going to get into pulling those people <laughs> apart but. <laughs> but maybe maybe there's something you can break down for me here because I found this quite interesting that some of these independent films that have been bought by independent distributors in the UK and US some of these licenses with the filmmakers are lapsing and I kind of would have thought that there would be a bit of goodwill here that they would go I know we said that it needs to be released you know by this state but you can't see this but paul shaking his head virulently um so what's the deal they're not being nice to sort of just say like oh, you know you can have an extra month on it for for gratis <laughs> be, you know, being nice who's, who's ever in, in business is nice <laughs> Amazon didn't get to the company they asked by being nice and being like, oh, don't worry about it for a couple of weeks. No, there was absolutely no leeway in it. Like you buy a license with a date stamped on it and, and that's that's your license. That's kind of it. Um, <laughs> even to the point, um, little sob story for you. So I was working on two films to release in March last year. So two Polish titles. Uh, one was 365 Days, which is was on Netflix. So that was... We didn't have the Netflix rights. We had the theatrical rights. So we did the UK on Valentine's Day and it was fairly huge to cut like half a million or whatever. And we were then releasing it in America. And then we had another Polish film, which was releasing in Europe only on the Friday of lockdown. So I can't remember the exact date, 23rd of March last year, maybe, or 20th of March or something. So it was simultaneous. We had both films coming out. One was in America, one was across Europe. I'd done, what, two, two and a half, three months work on these films, releasing them, getting them booked in, getting all licenses sorted. All the shows cancelled. That was it. Gone. Like wow. there was no money, there was no nothing. Savage. It was just you pay your license and 
that's it. That, that is literally, you know, but but we didn't make any money because we'd, you know, well, the cinema's closed. It's not my problem. And mm. you've just bought, you buy a license and it's a bit of paper. It's business. And that's that's what I think when I speak to a lot of people outside of the industry, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand about the industry. That is exactly that. Mm. The film industry is an industry and it's a business and it's all about money mm. and it's all about profit. There's no, as much as people love to go to the cinema and talk about good films, et cetera, et cetera, and what's commercially acceptable and blah, blah, blah. If, if it's not making money, it's not going to make a sequel. If it's not, you know, if it's not financially viable, you're not going to get another one. And mm. sometimes utter crap makes it a huge ton of money at the box office because people want to watch it. And I think it, there's this whole disparity in people's minds of people who sit outside of the industry who don't see the industry. They see it as entertainment, which it is. But fundamentally, at the bottom, it's a real harsh business of, of money, you know, and that's literally what it is. Like, films live and die. I've seen budgets go into films, £150,000, and then the film's just not made because it just doesn't make the money that, that they need to finish the film. And they're still looking for, like, it could only be fifty grand. Mm. And the film just doesn't get finished because they can't find that last fifty grand. So they've just wasted one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. There's no goodwill of people saying, "Oh, go on, I'll let you off until you release it." And blah. This just doesn't happen. It's just it's cutthroat. It's real oh, cutthroat. That's depressing. I was trying Sorry to, to depress. <laughs> I was trying to believe in the best of people that you know it's just a bunch of lovey dovey nice people in Soho all going. No, do you know what? Don't worry about it. It's absolutely. Fine. Weirdly, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's both those things <laughs> but the ones who say don't worry about it aren't the ones who sign in the checks oh shit okay well talking of sweet sweet coin Disney Plus is absolutely raking it in Disney Plus has reached 95 million subscribers three years earlier than predicted obviously Hammond is not amongst those 95 million subscribers <laughs> it's really interesting that you know the amount of subscribers that they have now and I think a lot of that is down to it's not down to the films that they, should, that they put on the platform it's due to the television shows yeah I think The Mandalorian and WandaVision have brought people in in droves because of the quality of those shows. Yeah, it's a perfect storm of the pandemic hitting and them actually starting to produce original content and also from their investors call committing to that vision and saying, look, we're going to give you, we're going to mainline you content now if you come over and join us. It's not just about getting the historic back catalogue. Well, <laughs> I mean, obviously we've got all the Fox stuff coming on there now, which will be fantastic. But yeah, it's, it's really becoming a dominant force in the streaming market. And the, the the theatrical side of it, so Black Widow, James Bond, all of those films, these companies don't, they don't need to release them online. There's no need for them to release it for another three years if they don't want to. The MCU and James Bond, etc., they're going to make money whenever they're released, like whether it's this year or next year, they're still going to make money. They don't, there's no need from their side of things. And I think the pressure in the media comes from an audience perspective. And again, it comes back to them being a business. Like they're not interested in you as an audience in that sense. Like they don't, care how long you have to wait for Black Widow or James Bond. They just care that they get their money back for their investment. So they don't, there's no actual physical need for them to release these films. It, when you get down the smaller distributors, yes, there's a, there is more need because obviously licenses are expiring and there's you have to change plans and you kind of have to just sort of suck it up and, and get on with it. But these big studios, they don't there's no real need for them to actually release these films other than the baying crowds of people who are desperate to see them. Um, well, we, I mean, we, <laughs> having said that though, MGM obviously reported that it's costing them one mil a month to keep that film on the shelf yeah. uh, with Bond. But I certainly with Disney and you know Warner and, and these, these other studios that are a bit more financially stable. Yeah, absolutely. They, they don't need to. Ladies and gentlemen, your projectionist tonight is Eric. Eric. Who has a hot, hot, job. He does very, very well. Unlike you, hasn't time to check himself. Unlike you, yeah, all right, all right, all right, all right.
Nice. Okay, great. So we move the spotlight onto our guest. So you've already heard from him, and this week is Paul Sweeney. I know, a man that often shies away from the spotlight. Paul is a freelance film consultant working to aid distribution and exhibition of films and content worldwide. He has a wealth of experience in the industry, having worked as a senior film buyer for Cineworld and a content manager for View Cinemas. He currently owns and operates Ad Hoc Consultancy, an accomplished film consultancy company which specialises in foreign language film, distribution and exhibition. Um, are you still involved with the Iris Prize as well, Paul? Yes, to a degree, on and off, as with most film festivals festivals you kind of dip in and out and they have different people it's kind of like a roundabout of things but yeah i'm still an active supporter of them and still do bits and bobs to help them where i can so yeah what's that so they're a lgbt plus film festival in cardiff they're one of the top five or they were last time i checked lgbt film festivals in in the world they run it in city world in cardiff and chapter which is a gorgeous little independent cinema in, in cardiff it's a short film festival it takes submissions from all around the world there's been some fantastic short films made from there so whoever wins from the jury so I've sat on the jury for them for a couple of a couple of years. Whoever wins that gets a X amount prize. I think it's fifty thousand pound. I can't oh, wow. remember to make a film, a short film, and they get to mix it and do all the recording things at uh, Pinewood. So Pinewood's a big supporter of them. That's great, Amazing. which is fantastic. And so yeah, it's just it's an incredible festival. And out of all the film festivals I go to, a lot. So you you either get ones that are real film markets where it's just boring people selling your films, or you go to ones where it's all lovey dovey people who just slap each other on the back and say, "Oh darling." it was amazing and <laughs> which half the time you're like really but the iris festival is generally it's such a feel-good week amazing awesome nice. fantastic so what started your love of film and do you remember the first film you saw and even the cinema that you saw in if you can remember i think i'm too old to remember that sort of stuff <laughs> my love of cinema i think as a kid growing up in the 80s i grew up with he-man and thundercats and gi joe and action force and all that kind of stuff mm. so when cinema kind of exploded in in the early 80s because i think it, i don't really remember it being much of a thing see i think it was 86 was it the first multiplex in mount keynes yeah. i think it was 86 yes right. i think i'm pretty sure it was the first multiplex was 86 uh the point in yeah. milton keynes fun fact so i'm obviously prior to that so it was all provincial town high street cinema one screen cinemas i do remember i'm pretty sure it was either empire strikes back or return of the jedi but i'm pretty sure it was empire strikes back because i remember sitting on my brothers because i had three older i've got three older brothers mm. and i'm pretty sure i remember sitting on one of their shoulders so i could see the screen <laughs> <laughs> um and i remember being petrified of darth vader on the big screen and i just remember the impact cinema had on me as a child mm. and the imaginative like the escapism that you could have from it i think as a kid i just it just completely shaped the rest of my life mm. into film which is and i think we've probably all got experiences like that those of us who are in, <laughs> this invested in film where you just go back to your childhood and how the impact of all these different films had on you it wasn't just a, a case of sitting down on a saturday afternoon watching whatever it was that your parents put on to keep you quiet because we did have vhs when i was a kid just i mean i had betamax as well but and laser disc but <laughs> this is just, ben's, ben's like what's a laser disc oh no i i'm fully aware what laser disc is okay. yeah ben's a hipster he's probably got laser disc <laughs> <laughs> they are terrible you have to turn it over halfway through but i think those sort of childhood memories really shaped my love of film it's kind of changed as you grow older working in the industry you have kind of a tarnished view of it and then you kind of move past that and you kind of work into the commercial side of it and then you realize it's a business and you yeah. think everything i know about this business is a lie um but actually <laughs> it sounds like bitter this morning about the business yeah but it's, 
<laughs> you do watch good films and mm. you do remind yourself as to why you do it and why we do what we do. And I talk a lot to film producers and directors and things. And you kind of that reminds you why you do it. Yeah. It's I mean, their passion as to what they're doing. And things. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, talking of, of it as a business, how did you get started in it? How What were your first sort of roles in the industry? So <laughs> when I was at school, well, sixth form, my first job was in Blockbuster Video. Nice. Back in the day. Google it, kids. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> I didn't know what Blockbuster is. It was in Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, so I worked at Blockbuster Video um, after school, and then I worked there for a couple more years and ended up being the manager of the store there. Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And what I really miss about that, I really miss that buzz of, and I think it's such a shame nowadays with everything online and digital, that people don't have that, that there's no, there is afterlife of film after theatrical, and it's a huge market now with digital platforms, and it's such availability for, for people, which is great in that sense. But it also kind of really sad that the whole environment of going into the blockbusters on a Friday or Saturday night with your mum and dad and being like, oh, what are we going to watch tonight? And mm. flicking it over each case and deciding what you're going to watch. I think we all just sit now on our couch and flick through netflix just oh, i don't know it just for me personally it's drained everything yeah a lot of the passion for it yeah the now. risk of um, sort of glorifying the old days of old all these ancient formats like laserdisc <laughs> and not that ancient and, and dvd but you're right there's a commitment there because what will happen now is if you watch something and after the first 10 20 minutes if it hasn't got you then you're just gonna like put something else on or, you know, yeah. you're distracted by seven other screens in your immediate facility. The art of going into Blockbuster, getting a VHS or getting a DVD is that you were stuck with that choice. Like, I paid £2.50 for this and I'm going to bloody well watch it, even yeah. if it is the worst thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, and and the only information you had was the blurb on the back of the box. That was it. Yeah. That's the only thing that steered your decision. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Or the good employees who they'd come up and say, what do you recommend? Oh, I'll have that then. They'll bring you the cover up. And you're like, no, you need the yellow case from behind. There's no yellow case. Oh, they're all out there. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so i worked in blockbusters and then i worked for cineworld so that's how i met mr hammond opened the cinema here in huntingdon worked for them managing and then ended up in head office in a random twist of fate in the film buying team up there which was literally like a dream come true it's like a kid in the sweet job time but like what you mean i can go and watch films and that's what i'm gonna get paid to do and and then they're like yeah but you've also got five days of all this admin stuff you need to do as well and you're like oh shit but uh so <laughs> i kind of did that which really reinvigorated everything i loved about film as much as i loved working in the cinemas i did not love the public i do i miss all of that kind of the buzz of film in that sense on friday saturday night of like we talked about with alfred hitchcock about the whole excitement of and you can feel the bus the electricity in cinema foyers when there's a big film on release of the anticipation of excitement that people really want to see this film on the big screen and that's i don't think personally that'll ever go i think that there's always a place for cinema mm. um all these naysayers who say no oh, it's the death of cinema it's absolutely not like mm. you can't get that buzz sat on netflix flicking through like i said go nope 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 you don't get that buzz at all and even if films like wonder woman or trolls you still don't get that buzz and excitement about it there is a real thrill about getting in your car driving up to a car park buying your product queuing despite everyone moaning about it but and all that kind of stuff and i i, that, I don't think that'll ever go i think no. that's always that's kind of in our culture now and i think what's brilliant in the uk is we've nurtured cinema culture into our kids from a very early age so all of the chains have sort of nurtured through moves for juniors and like kids films and stuff in the morning for that cheap thing it's a real part of people's lives mm. now it's yes it's going to evolve it's going to change but to me i think that that buzz is always going to be there so yeah so i was in head office then i went to view 
for a couple of years. So I was a content manager at View Cinemas, got made redundant there. So I've been made redundant twice in the film industry, which probably says a lot about me. But it's again, it's a business and I don't take any of it personally because it's a business at the end of the day. The natural progression for the path I'd taken through cinemas, through film buying, mm. etc., was to go into distribution. That was kind of always the given that, you know, that was the pinnacle. You kind of went on from film buying to selling. <laughs> that was kind of like what you did. Andrew Turner did exactly the same thing, who he was on a couple of weeks ago, wasn't he? And I think you've had Hamish, he did exactly the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. The industry was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and the job roles were getting less and less and less and the business itself was thriving so I kind of thought what do I do now and I sort of looked at a couple of jobs that were going around sort of sat there and thought oh god like how am I going to survive what am I going to do to stay in this industry that I love and then I suddenly thought right well I think I know my stuff maybe I'll set up my own consultancy company and see if anybody wants to hire me to consult with which sounds to me and always still does sound a little bit trumpet blowing because you kind of think oh i know everything about it you need to pay me to come and tell you about it but actually you realize that the industry is very small and actually the knowledge you have and the longer you've been in it the more knowledge you have on the changes and the evolution of things so i kind of thought you know what i'll set up my own company which i did i set it all up on the company's house i'm very chuffed that i had this company name and i was the director of this company i thought oh i've got any clients (laughs) got anything to do like (laughs) Um, what do i do it then occurred to me at the start oh wait there's a Polish film market is completely under tap and I can actually offer a lot of input into this and Phoenix Productions who is one of my biggest clients in fact we're pretty much partners now were kicking around at the time and I thought oh do you know what I could probably help them you know they had a a deal where they were working with Odeon they were only screening in Odeon cinemas and I thought oh there's this we all know that Polish people are everywhere in the UK you know there's 1.7 million Polish uh, Eastern Europeans in the UK and we're only hitting how much percentage at Odeon I thought oh hang on there's there's a niche here so did my work did my research into that contacted the company worked with the company for a couple of months on how we could best work it through and then I've never really looked back since then the last 12 months I have but then because of lockdown but the up till that point that was that was kind of how I got and that's where ad hoc film consultancy came from and I think had I not reached out and started work with Phoenix it'd probably be a very different conversation now mm-hmm. as to what I'd be doing self-appreciation about what you do do in the industry I'm always a bit like oh really people really want me to do that I'm not good enough to do that but yeah so I, I've done that I've worked with a lot of other smaller independent distributors and releasing different films we've done I've done some work with Bulldog um, with Eureka Evolutionary Films um, I can't remember there's, there's quite a few others who I've worked with and again you realise that coming from one of these big corporate backgrounds how much you actually do know about the industry and how you can help these other companies and it, it's also a frustration because then you think wait I worked in that and these guys are trying to play in there. Why can't we all just play nice and mm. everyone do everything? You know, mm. why can't we just, if everyone did what we needed them to do, it would be a much nicer place. But of course, it doesn't It doesn't work like that. But that's kind of the nice part of my job is that I can work on the fence. I can talk to the big distributors and the big exhibitors and work with the Polish films. And then I can also do a lot of work with some of these smaller distributors on getting their films into the bigger uh, complexes because they traditionally only play in art house cinema independence in it so yes and i love what i do i absolutely yeah. love what i do now just love it and as we spoke about before we started recording i've also started back into acting which has come hand in hand with producing films as well so i started i would have been producing films at this point but so yeah so it's that's kind of that's kind of me in a nutshell so paul we always like to ask ask this of our guests i mean it, it's sometimes controversial because whether people buy into the concept at all but do you have a film you would describe as a guilty pleasure a film that's generally derided by critics and the public but something you absolutely love yeah bloody hundreds of them how many do you want and how long have we got i was thinking about this the other day actually we were talking about films with a friend of mine and i was and they were laughing at me about some of my film choices so i'm very critical of films so a lot of my 
younger years, we had to travel to Cambridge because I can't remember. I want to say it was an ABC cinema, but I could be wrong. But it was on the high street by the bus station. I remember always having to go on the bus. Ghostbusters I saw there as well. Absolutely shit myself with the, <laughs> the library ghost coming back on the bus because it was all dark and we drove past the circus and I was probably, what, seven or whatever it was. <laughs> and I saw Supergirl there and I remember seeing it with my mum and just absolutely falling in love with superheroes. As you can see, I've got you can't see it at home, but I've got a massive comic collection behind me. Huge comic geek. So Supergirl on the big screen was just, oh, amazing like fantastic but everyone hates that film bar me but my <laughs> real guilty pleasure that you're all gonna go what spice world oh, oh wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i've known you long enough to know that that's really not a surprise <laughs> i love spice world i love the spice girls it's got a great soundtrack but yes it's a terrible terrible film but it hit at the right point it was huge when it released on boxing day i remember the buzz of going into the cinema and everyone being absolutely buzzing in the in the auditorium for it and do you know what what they did and what they did at their time and it, you know for a pop group who lasted three years or three albums to have a film that is still remembered in in box office history it's in in the way it is like, much like the beatles <laughs> there you go who thought the beatles and spice girl would be mentioned in one sentence on your it's podcast fucking spice world the movie it's just compared night, to or... the beatles yeah oh it's way better than hard days night. what <laughs> <laughs> no it, it is a guilty pleasure it is a real guilty pleasure and i actually think you know for what it was it was all right and the amount of guest stars in it I mean, Richard D. Grant's in there, Meatloaf, Joanna Lumley, you name it. They're all in there. They all wanted to be a part of it. And it was a bit of a phenomenon at the time. So, yeah. You definitely wow. pulled the brief on that question. Yeah, <laughs> nailed it. I, I was the first leading man in, in the movie, having starred in White Chicks. Then this movie marked the beginning of motion pictures. White Chicks. Created a sensation. Well, on that bombshell, then, it's time to move on to our in review section. And this week, the films were picked kind of by me, but proxy by other people. So the first. Can we just, sorry, can we just make a note there that Hammond is very quickly distancing himself from the choices that he made? In that case, I will stand <laughs> by my two choices. <laughs> so let's talk. And you picked on me for Spice World. I don't know. <laughs> so let's start with The Lie then, which is on Amazon Prime, released in 2018, directed by Vina Sud and stars Mirail Enos, Peter Sarsgaard, Joey King, and Cass Anvar. Hey. Bet they thought they were gonna get away with this, huh? Excuse me? Brittany and Kayla didn't make it to the dance camp. Didn't the school call you? No, Kayla's sick. I kept her home this weekend. I was sure they were doing this together. You know, they're with their secret plans. You need to tell her dad that you don't know where she is. No. Hey, what happened to your face? Looks like you got hit. Is there a bathroom nearby? I'm scared. She can't be trusted to talk to Brittany's dad. Where's your friend? Oh. Whatever this game is that you're playing, it's over. Where's Brittany? Get off me! Dad, get out of here! I'm going to the police. How do you want to do something really bad? I pushed her. The second degree murder. So this is about a father who is driving his daughter to a weekend dance camp when they spot the girl's best friend on the side of the road. When they stop to offer the friend a ride, their good intentions soon result in terrible consequences. Who's going first? <laughs> so I think I was about 15 minutes into this film when I first noticed my first piece of Ikea furniture. It's the two wooden crates. I have them at home, by the way. We're not sponsored by Ikea. We seem to mention them a lot in this podcast. And then I spent the subsequent rest of the running time spotting further things from the Ikea catalogue. And I think if you're 
watching a film and you're more distracted by the background than what's actually happening in the plot and the foreground, then you're probably not engaged with the story. This was just over 90 minutes and I must have looked at the clock every five minutes. I was so, so <laughs> bored. I'm really sorry. I just, I found this so dull. And the bit that really made me laugh, and this is going to be a minor spoiler. So if you are planning to watch this film, and I recommend that you don't do that, but if you are going to watch this film, <laughs> skip ahead about five minutes, all right? Because there's a bit in the middle, and this is hilarious, when Salsgaard and Enos are, so they're the parents, and they're having this like nice moment in the bathroom. You know, we've all been there. That sweet moment where she's clearing off the blood of his face. They're planning how their daughter can get away with murder. We've all done it, you know. And it cuts to King, the daughter, who's outside the bathroom door and she's hearing them and her face is just beaming and that's when I turned around, I was watching it with my partner and I turned to her and I said, oh my god, she's totally parent trapping her parents back together. She's totally using this murder as an excuse to get her divorced parents to sort of rekindle their love together. And I just thought it was so, so silly. It's not a badly made film. It looks fine. Single location for most of it, so it probably wasn't that expensive. I think the acting is fine. Stalsgaard is really good. Mirel Enos as the mother was fantastic. No, she's really, really good. But by the time I got to the end, I, the best I could say is just, I just could not care less whether or not they went to jail. I was just so unengaged with the main story. And again, I was distracted by stuff that was happening in the background, like how many people have a key to their house? <laughs> Apparently everyone on the street <laughs> could just let themselves into this family home. It's just beige. This is a beige film. It's just so dull. Sorry, I really didn't like it. It was just boring. This, this film relies on you investing and believing in the central conceit of the film. And there's nothing in the script that allows an audience to believe that the parents would go to the, the lengths that they would to cover this up. It makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm not going to give away the ending, but when the reveal happens at the back end of the film, it was a good shot, but I didn't have a bowl of popcorn in front of me because I literally I would have thrown it at the screen, screaming, fuck <laughs> off. It just, it, it, it was, it, it, I, I totally agree with you. It is, I thought the script was really poor. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not like she hasn't done this before, right? A lot. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to bother you about it. No, uh, no I hope Kayla feels better. Bye. Oh, actually, um, you think I could talk to Kayla for a second? You said she was home, right? Um, she went out, her dad took her to the doctor. Uh, can she call me when she's back? I don't want to impose. No, of course. She'll call you. I have your number. Three more years, and uh, they're off to college, right? I can't wait. There you go. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought the, before, the, the actors did a really good job with a poor script. Their performances were completely fine. I had no issue with that. I didn't believe for one second that those characters would do what they would do because of the script. I quite liked the colour palette. It was quite washed out. It had a quite a bleak look. The look of it was quite, but it was it was very clean and very clear. It was, like I said, it was very Ikea. But it was just, I didn't believe any of it. Well, that's good because the film's called The Lie. <laughs> I think the, the lie was that this had anything other than a zero out of five star rating on any platform. <laughs> oh, that's incredibly harsh. It was really, really poor. You have to believe the set of conceit and the script wasn't remotely good enough to enable an audience to even entertain that as a notion for me. Mm. Sweeney. What, what did I think of it? Well, <laughs> at the risk of, of falling into a character of television, what a load of old <laughs> shit! <laughs> Honest to God! <laughs> Honest to God! 
firstly, what was that? So I'm pretty sure I haven't researched, but I'm pretty. She's the writer director of the killing. Yes, right? Oh wow! Well, yeah. So it looks like the killing, and I'm pretty sure the mum, whose name Miralina stars in the killing, she's fantastic. Uh, yeah, she's and she's fantastic in the killing, and this palette is exactly the same. And I agree with you. It's not beige. It's grey. It's just grey to look at. It's just. It's like being in Aberdeen in the winter. Like it's just grey, and it's. Oh God, it was, I'm like, what is this about? Like when the twist happens, but again, I was going to go into it, but I'm not going to do now. So like, that's the end. Like that's, oh, we're supposed to just be like, oh, okay, cool. Oh, right. I get it. I get what she was doing. I get the whole premise of what was happening. And she wanted to bring her parents back together. It's like, there's, there's counseling for stuff like that. And then you're like, hang on, this is a Blumhouse film. And I know Blumhouse have a real hit and miss with some of their films. I mean, for every get out they have, they have the lie and <laughs> or one of the other ones with kevin bacon in and i've really struggled to think that jason blum sat there and thought you know what this is going to look really good on my list of films on my slate it must have been really cheap mm. to to do it must have got them really like loads of tax money back from somewhere in europe where they've obviously filmed it yeah thanks for thanks for the hour and a half of my life i'm not getting back from you guys but uh, yeah thanks well, ben for recommending well, that yeah in in the words of jules winfield <laughs> allow me to retort <laughs> I had no issue with it. I enjoyed myself. What was wrong with this? I mean, you've just had three people list lots of things that were wrong with it. <laughs> totally fine. I could totally side with the parents wanting to protect their daughter. I could see it from the teenager's point of view, trying to, you know, pull the wool over their parents' eyes in order to go and have some weekend shenanigans somewhere. I loved it at the end when it all went horribly wrong and... You know, you can foresee the, the consequences and, you know, the daughter's essentially fucked up everyone's lives for good. It was fine. Nothing wrong with this. What's wrong with you lot? After I watch films, I like to see what other critics and reviewers are saying. And people are being unfairly harsh on this, including you three. And it appears as though, it appears as though a lot of people can't forgive Joey King for things like The Kissing Booth, which I'm amazed, Sweeney, you didn't mention as one of your guilty pleasures. But And there doesn't appear to be a huge amount of love for Venus Hood either. Uh, just let those things go. You'll never catch me having hang-ups on people's past performances or films. Just move on, people. What's wrong? Well, yeah. But we haven't mentioned past performances. We've just been talking about this film. Yeah. And we didn't like it. I'm not saying you have. I'm <laughs> saying... <laughs> All the acting yeah. was weird. The there was nothing wrong with the acting. They just had nothing to talk about. I saw the twist coming a mile off. The scene in the garage at the end, I thought it was all right. Nothing wrong with this. I think you're all wrong. I think you went, not not everything's got to be highbrow. No, but it has to be it brow. It has to have a brow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that we both went for the same joke, Green. <laughs> yeah, it has to at least be brow. Like, there has to be something to, to happen in this. As I said, at best, you could say uh, we were all very uninterested. At worst, I could say there's a moment in this film where it sort of skirts around self-harm, depression. And I just felt that was such a, a shorthand in the film to sort of say, oh, she's got problems. And it just breezes over that. And I was like, no, you can't do that. You can't just casually just toss that in to sort of go, oh, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe her? I mean, she cuts herself. Like, that's, no, that's, that's fucking serious stuff. And if you're going to use it, yeah. take it seriously and address it properly. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I was giving it a bit of a pass by just saying it was beige. But, you know, I could dig in further and say that moments of it were actually offensive. Yeah, I agree with you. Sorry yeah. to make it. Totally. Good. Sorry to make things very sombre. That's okay. Hammond, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think I've lost a lot of respect for you. Am I though? Yeah. Because you yeah. three have sat and spoken quite passionately about this film for a long time now, so it invoked some sort of reaction. It did, I suppose. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. make good cinema, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on? Please. To my second choice, which was The Dig on Netflix, released this year, directed by Simon Stone, featuring Kerry Mulligan, Rafe Fiennes, Lily James, and Johnny Flynn. Mr. Brown is an archaeologist. I'm an excavator. You've come to dig up the mounds. So you think there's something beneath? Who are those men? They're from the museum. Gods! Mrs. Pretty, I think you'd better come and see. 
Why would anyone want to bury a ship? I would expect this is a grave of a, a warrior or a king. But there's more. There's much more. War is looming. All hands are on deck to excavate before hostilities begin. The Dark Ages are no longer dark. Everyone's going to want a piece, and this is your fun. This is based on the 2007 novel of the same name as this film reimagines the events of a 1939 excavation in Sutton Hoo. As World War II looms, a wealthy widow hires an amateur archaeologist to excavate the burial mound on her estate. I really enjoyed this movie. Oh, thank <laughs> fuck for that, you miserable bastard. It's a quintessentially small British film. There's a charm to it that is... So it's quite nostalgic in a way, and not because it's a period piece, but just in terms of my film sort of watching experiences, you know, from an early age. Uh, and it invoked that performances across the board were great. It was a really interesting exploration into that period in history that I didn't know a huge amount about. My only, and it's not, it's not a criticism as such. It was just a, an odd perspective thing that the film is there to tell the story of this unsung hero of the Sutton Hoo excavation, but it's told from the perspective of Kerry Mulligan's character, the the woman who owns the property that it's on the on-screen information that comes up at the back end of the film is, is very much detailing what happened to him so the film is should be about the, the Ray Fiennes character but the film is told from her perspective and I wanted more insight into him within the context of the film and more screen time for Ray Fiennes character that I found a little odd because it's supposed to be giving him his moment in the spotlight for, for the film but i think beautifully played the detail on on the dig itself was was exact when you look at the actual photographs from it they they did an exceptional job in that i thought it was a really enjoyable experience i'm glad i'm really glad i watched it i just i love ray fine so much and his character in this was great and at the end i kind of exclaimed out loud when it said you know he received no recognition at all for his work you was like you motherfucker what is wrong with people why are people so horrible but yeah i did re- i did also enjoy the bits where it went back to his kind of little humble house with him and his wife you know living there. it was a very sweet film it looked gorgeous there were some shots in this that were, were just absolutely stunning and i really enjoyed there was a scene right at the start but it must have been drone footage or something but it was so far away should we take a look at them then right things like this are usually done through museums yes but when i approached ipswich mr reed moore said that with the war coming they couldn't embark upon any new ventures well, they have their hands full with a Raymond Villa. Yes, he said you were working on it. I am. He told me you were a difficult man. <laughs> Did he know? <laughs> Unorthodox. And untrained. So that's his reference, is it? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not untrained. I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. Kerry Mulligan and Ray Fiennes were almost, you, you couldn't see them, you could just hear their voices as they were walking through the field, and it was just such a beautiful shot, kind of set scene of where they were in Sutton Hoo. Yeah, for what what essentially isn't, I don't know, it's not electrifying subject matter, it was a really sweet, romantic field type film, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head with me there, like the electrifying subject matter, because guys, archaeology is exciting. <laughs> we have spitfires flying over every five minutes. The war is coming. We have two bickering museums. <laughs> Ralph Fiennes is buried under mud. Is he going to get out? Is he going to live? We have a kid with a missing father complex. Can Fiennes be the father we never knew he needed? We will find out. And we, we have this romantic story that is, it seems so crowbarred in. I was generally surprised Lily James didn't end that arc by shouting, I'm disappointed with my marriage as she makes out with a toolbox. It was so unnecessary. <laughs> 
why have we got all this extra gubbins in? Just take all that out. We just, it, it wasn't necessary. As Paul said, we could have had more backstory with Brown's character or ju just cut down the running time. It just felt very added in because at the core, you've got a brilliant performance from Fines. You've got a brilliant performance from Carrie Mulligan. They're selling the stakes. We don't need all this extra shit in it just to make us go, oh, archaeology is really exciting. All this stuff's happening. It's like, no, you've got a great, lovely, sweet, charming film at its heart here. And yeah, case in point, the cinematography is gorgeous in this. Mike Ely is the cinematographer on this. He's done loads of stuff based in Britain. And yeah, I mean, Suffolk, Norfolk, where it was shot, it just looked so, so lush. This is a really sweet, charming film. Go out and watch it. It, it looks fantastic. You, you won't be wasting your time. But I just felt all this other stuff just wasn't necessary. Just give us the drama of, of finding this big boat because it is thrilling. It's exciting when they find it. I mean, the, the unnecessary stuff is when it's like, you know, Lily James's husband's gay. <laughs> Everybody, look. And then two minutes later, no, seriously, everybody, look. And yeah. then five minutes later, oh, in case you didn't realise, look, look, everybody, look <laughs> yeah, what's totally, happening. Exactly. Like, okay, we fucking get it. Move on. <laughs> yeah. I Well, yeah, I agree with you all generally on the whole. I, I don't know if I could call it a sweet film. I think it's just a bland, inoffensive Sunday afternoon watch. It surprised me that, I mean, it would never have got made had Ray Fiennes and Kerry Mulligan not been in that because uh, if you sit there and then reflect and think, do you know what? If two unknown actors had been those roles would we be saying the same thing no they were both i mean they're they're excellent actors anyway they're you know all of the cast were fantastic but they didn't really have anything to do like i'm pleased none of you said awards because like you just look at them and think well they didn't they didn't have anything to do it was just conversation and a bit of the most exciting thing was where he got you know all that mud fell on him really <laughs> they didn't really explore her relationship with her son enough for me to be bolt into the fact that she was dying and that she he was going to be an orphan uh, fundamentally i get that she's probably dying because she's coughing and if you had a cough back in them days you died <laughs> like i just i was like oh yeah yeah it's good it was very beautiful to watch if it hadn't been beautiful i would have switched it off the whole ben chaplin being gay thing and the signposts of the three scenes you're like what's the point like we've just talked about with the lie and about the self-harm thing make a point of it and actually explain what the problem is don't just skirt around it and be like oh there's a touch point or we've ticked that box you don't really care that she's in a loveless marriage and ends up with that toolbox of a guy because you're like i don't really care about you and then like ben said at the end where it comes up about him mm. um, not getting recognition for his work on the dig and you're like you've just made a film and not given him recognition for it like <laughs> make a film from his perspective and actually recognize what he did that infuriated me I a little bit and also the biggest thing from my memory is that isn't there a big Sutton Who helmet that they found? Yeah, yeah. So the Sutton Who helmet, I think, is a, a real one of the biggest finds they had there. It's like some Anglo-Saxon king's helmet, I believe. Well, mention it. Discover that. You know, when they were dusting all that jewellery off, it was like someone had just dropped their Primark bangles into the <laughs> dirt and they just dusted over it. And I'm being overly critical of it, I guess, because but it was such a bland film. I want to have some sort of emotion about the power <laughs> it. Yeah, it was kind of just inoffensive. But would I recommend it to people? Probably not. It's probably not something that you know. If we'd done this podcast next week and you'd said what have you seen this week i probably wouldn't have talked about it fair enough in that sense okay all right so two out of two then <laughs> wow that's some revisionist history right there hammond before we move on to the next section, we wanted to announce the launch of the very first Have You Seen This competition. That's right. We want you to get the word out for our little pod and hopefully there's something in it for you as well. What we want you to do is head to Have You Seen This on Apple Podcasts. Just search Have You Seen This on your iPhone in the podcast app. Rate us five stars and give us a really quick, glowing, hopefully, review. It really doesn't have to be long. One sentence or even one word will do. Once you've done this, take a picture or screen grab to prove it and email it to us at seen this this pod at gmail.com subject matter competition don't have an iphone 
Don't worry, you can do exactly the same on Facebook. That's right, head to facebook.com forward slash seen this pod, click on the review tab, leave a five star review, screen grab that, and email it into seen this pod at gmail.com. And that's seen spelled S C E N E. And why should people do this? Glad you asked. We have on offer an exciting prize the Have You Seen This official top five films of 2020 on Blu ray up for grabs for one lucky winner that emails in the screenshot of their review. So for those who aren't in the know, that's 1917 and Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman on 4K Blu ray plus Jojo Rabbit, Parasite and Baby Teeth on regular Blu-ray all up for grabs. We will of course select one entry at random to win all five films on Blu-ray and for every runner-up we will send them an Have You Seen This badge? And the main prize winner will now get an exclusive Have You Seen This t-shirt as well. Get reviewing and send in your screen grabs and pictures to seenthispod at gmail.com now. The competition closes 2nd of March and we will announce the winner live on the 10th of March on episode 12 of the pod. When I say live I mean we'll record it, we'll dig names out of a hat then we'll announce it everyone will be happy we'll go home good luck guys and yeah get sending in good luck everybody Moving on then to our review spin-off questions. So inspired by The Dig, which obviously stars Rafe Fiennes, what, in your opinion, is the best Rafe Fiennes performance he has given to date from film or TV? So I went for a David Cronenberg film from 2002 called Spider. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not a comedy. As you expect from Cronenberg, it's very dark, it's very dingy, and it's set in the UK, and Rafe Fiennes plays the lead character, Dennis Clegg, it starts the film, he's getting off a train, he goes to a halfway house, he's had mental issues which he's still dealing with in a in a huge way of, um, to do with traumas that he suffered as a child. And it's a film about him dealing w- with that and flashbacks to you know, when he was younger and, and what that was. His performance in that, it's just astonishing, it's, it's meticulous. I can't find a flaw in that performance from my, from my memory of it at, at the time and, and how affected I was when I left the cinema after having watched it. And Ray Fiennes can does sometimes a bit like Colin Firth in terms of he can be a bit Ray Fiennes in some of his performances, but he was just not that in this film. He was completely immersed in it. Cronenberg did a brilliant directing job. That had to be my choice here. So Spider from 2002. Nice. Because like you said, it's a very tough watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My choice is from Martin McDonough's In Bruges from 2008. Uh, Ralph Fiennes plays Harry. That's my Whoa, pick. Oh dear. <laughs> Snap. Well, I thought it'd be too obvious to go for Wes, so I didn't pick Grand Budapest. So in Bruges, I mean, everyone's seen it, haven't they? But, you know, just to recap, Colin Farrell is laying low after a high score wrong in Belgium's Bruges, whilst his colleague and friend, played by amazingly played by Brendan Gleeson, has been a task to take him out by Ralph Fiennes' mob boss. When the task isn't done, Fiennes decides to turn up himself to get the job done. When I phoned you yesterday, did I ask you, Ken, will you do me a favour and become race psychiatrist, please? No. What I think I asked you was, could you go blow his fucking head off for me? He's suicidal. I'm suicidal. You're suicidal. Everybody's fucking suicidal. We don't all keep going on about it. Has he killed himself yet? No. So he's not fucking suicidal, is he? He put a load of gun to his head this morning. I stopped him. He... This gets fucking worse. We were down the park. Let me get this right. You were down the park? What's that got to do with fucking anything? 
Let me get this wrong. Not only have you refused to kill the boy, you've even stopped the boy from killing himself, which would have solved my problem, which would have solved your problem, which sounds like would have solved the boy's problem. It wouldn't have solved his problem. It's just brilliant, isn't it? I mean, he's just so foul-mouthed, but so, so funny and just brutal. And the bit in the film, which I love the most, it, it transpires that he sent him to Bruges, not as punishment, because Colin Farrell and, and Gleason are having the worst time ever. <laughs> it's like the anti-couples holiday. But he sent them there as a treat because he remembers going to Bruges as a kid and loving it. And that's why he sent them there. He wanted Farrell's character to see something lovely before he's taken out of this world. I, I love that. It's such a great touch. Yeah, Hammond, have you got anything else to add on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the script and the dialogue delivery in this film is genius. It's razor sharp. It's hilariously funny. Ray finds even when he's just a voice on the other end of the phone, steals every single scene in this film. I love his performance. Like, if you haven't seen it, get it watched. The one-liners in this film are so funny. And we're going to have to edit this out, but when he screams down the phone, don't you talk about my <laughs> fucking kids, is just one of the funniest <laughs> things. Oh, my God. Ray Fiennes is just electric in this film, and I love him in this. So, yeah, yeah, great one. And Martin McDonough's stuff. I mean, he was responsible for, what, three billboards and seven psychopaths. If you've not seen seven psychopaths, much in the vein of Imbruge, just um, probably darker, actually, but still just as funny. Obviously starring the brilliant, brilliant Sam Rockwell alongside Colin Farrell. So, yeah, great pick. Well done. <laughs> Sweeney. Mine's a bit left kilter, so I Paul's just said about he generally does play Ray Fiennes, plays Ray Fiennes in a lot of the films I've seen him in, but he's a fantastic actor. So I was thinking, right, out of the box, what, what do I actually like him in that's not one of those films that everybody universally likes, like English Pace and all that crap? Red Dragon. Oh, nice. As uh, Francis uh, Dollarhide or The Tooth Fairy. Absolutely. I love that film. I know it was a bit derided by critics, etc. because it's, it's not... I was going to say, is this your guilty pleasure? It could have been guilty pleasure. I did think that, actually. I was thinking, oh, God, this could be a guilty pleasure. But it's got... Yeah, it's got Andy Hopkins in it. You can't, you can't have it as a guilty pleasure. The book is way better, but I think Ray Fiennes is brilliant in it as a villain, which he doesn't generally get to play that psychotic side of him, but I think he plays it very well. I love the fact that he put on how many X pounds of muscle to create that character and actually stands out in a film with, fundamentally, Edward Norton, him and Anthony Hopkins. And you think, actually, that should be on paper. That should be a powerhouse film, but it's not. He's the standout performance from it. The other two kind of just pale into insignificance, I think. But yeah, Red Dragon. Nice. nice. And nobody said Voldemort, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Moving on to our second in-scene question then. And inspired by the new Amazon Prime film Greenland and also everything in the world still being shit. Uh, what is your favourite end of the world film? Can be post-apocalypse or an end of the world film where it is saved at the last minute. So I'm going to be completely out of character for a moment here and totally lower the, lower the tone for my answer. Firstly, if Paul Chapman is listening to this episode and my memory serves me correctly, I'm pretty sure we were both on duty and we cheekily watched this during a very quiet morning shift in a cinema shall remain nameless. I'm going to go back to 2013 for a film as ridiculous as it is hilarious and has more A-list cameos in it, including one of the best roles Michael Sarah has ever played uh, in a bathroom scene. And it's Seth Rogen's This Is The End. Wait a second. I know what happened. You guys dropped acid, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Craig doesn't have any pants on. He got fucking wild, probably danced, sweated all over the place. You got white shit all over your mouth, Frankie. You probably sucked somebody's dick. Jonah over here probably watched and jerked off. Daniel, you may want to stay seated for a second because some really messed up stuff happened and there were a lot of fatalities. Okay, tell me about these fatalities. Dude, Siegel's dead, Krumholz is dead, Michael Sarah's dead. Yes, and Michael Sarah's gone, it's not a total loss, huh? Seth, that's a better performance than you've given in your last six movies. Where the fuck was that in Green Hornet, huh? Jonah, you're an Academy Award nominated person. You need to be fucking selling that shit, dude. Fatalities, there was some fatalities. Fatalities. Okay, now that was good. 
That was good. Does it seem the story like- of six Los Angeles celebrities who get stuck in James Franco's house after a series of devastating events that destroyed the city. Inside, the group not only have to face the apocalypse, but also themselves. Utterly ridiculous, full of disgusting jokes, both verbal and visual, but really, really very, very funny. It's just a very good film. Very bizarre, very, you know, doesn't Channing Tatum turn up as a gimp at the end being walked through a car park by Danny McBride on a leash. That kind of sets the tone for the entire film. But yeah, ridiculous, but very funny. So that's my pick. That's a fantastic choice. On paper, that sounds like the ultimate vanity project and would be so totally uninteresting to watch. But what I love about this is the end is that the actual apocalypse is done so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's very funny. So my choice for this is also a comedy and it is Shaun of the Dead. In the garden, there is a girl. Oi! Hey. Oh my God. She's so drunk. <laughs> Aren't you bad, love? Oh, I think she likes you. I think she wants a cuddle. Listen, I'm serious, I'm just out of a relationship. <laughs> Do something! Wait there. And just get her off me! Jeez! What's up with her eye? Now, seriously, uh, uh, Mary, I'm, I'm warning you, okay? I'm gonna have to get physical. I mean it. This is it! I'm gonna. What else to say about this film that hasn't been said already? I think it's a a genius piece of work. It's a perfect homage to the George Romero zombie franchise and Edgar Wright Simon Pegg did a brilliant job in writing the script. Edgar Wright did a fantastic job in directing the movie and it is the film that really launched their careers and uh, into the sort of the megastars that they are now. Laugh out loud funny, stands up to repeated reviewings. Yeah, so Shaun of the Dead. That's that's my choice. Off the back of that, my fig is George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Where it all started. I'm generally not a fan of the end of the world films, you know, all that apocalyptic crap. So uh, mine is anything to do with zombies or anything ravaging the earth. (laughs) Uh, Night of the Living Dead is where how how it started for George A. Romero. It's it brought in a new generation of horror and it reimagined all that kind of stuff and it and then it obviously spawned things like Shaun of the Dead. Mm There, 30 or 40 years later yeah, yeah, nice. i was also thinking of a film called when the wind blows have you seen this yeah. the cartoon oh yeah. my god so yeah. i wasn't going to talk about it because i hate it <laughs> released in i think about 84 83 it's a cartoon and it's about an old couple it's kind of like up but in nuclear war and there's a the four minute warning siren goes off and there's this old couple living in house and the four minute warning goes off for nuclear bomb and it's about them living through the blast and the after effects of nuclear blast and it absolutely terrified me as a kid and even to the point where i'd go to people's houses shortly after and look around their house to see where, where would be safe if the four minute <laughs> bloody siren warning went off because as a kid you're like shit does this is this does this happen is this life is like are we just waiting for this siren to go off if you haven't seen when the wind blows and you fancy freaking yourself out a little bit watch that nice. but it's certainly not my favourite, but I just stretched the imagination <laughs> freaked me out. My pick is. is the very sombre and thought-provoking Melancholia from 2011, Lars von Trier. For me, he, he can be very hit and miss. This stars Kirsten Dunst, who suffers from depression as a bride on her wedding day, but it also happens to be the end of the world as well. So this film, I don't know if you've seen it, but it opens with some gorgeous slow-motion photography of animals and people reacting to the end of the world, and then the, the film is almost bookended by this. It has it at the play at the end as well. It's a film that deals with depression head-on and it kind of focuses on the fact that I mean it's, it's it's drizzled with metaphor it focuses on the fact that people with depression are basically more susceptible and more acceptable of the the world ending um, your dog agrees with me really, clearly. <laughs> it's a wonderful film so if you haven't seen it check out Melancholia and Dunn's performance is, is absolutely incredible I have a worst pick for this 
because I couldn't not mention this film. I have to mention this film. It's 2009's Knowing, starring Nicolas Cage. What a piece of shit. Oh. I think it was I think it was Mark Komodo yeah. who famously said when it came out, what happens when the numbers stop? Well, you just count from a higher number. <laughs> it's, it's just absolute nonsense. And these liquid aliens turn up with long elbows who abduct her, his creepy looking son. I just, oh, it's, it's shocking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 2009's Knowing, avoid it like the plague. Yeah. Hey kids, how would you like to hear this on the street instead of the great show you came to see? Honest, honest. Please cooperate and do your part in keeping this theater quiet and, and enjoy. Some adults and kids who paid admission to enjoy the show. Remember how you see this. this. That's it then. So that does bring us to the end of the reviews and the questions. We just need to know what are we reviewing for episode 12? My first pick is going to be the new Paul Greengrass film that dropped on Netflix over the weekend and stars the delectable, the wonderful, the charming, the person we all want in our lives, Tom Hanks. So this looks really good. So we're going to be watching that. That's the news of the world. And the second thing I want to pick on Amazon Prime, it's a small documentary that was put out by Dogwoof, I think. It's called 76 Days. And so this is, there's a lot of stuff coming out now about the pandemic, fictional or otherwise, but this documentary looks fantastic and they're there in the early days of the virus breaking out in Wuhan and their access to that those hospitals as they're dealing with it then just not knowing what was going on it, it just looks incredible so yeah 76 days so that's the other thing and that's on Amazon Prime and it's uh, VOD. Uh, okay so that just leaves the question then. So I've read so much useless film trivia this week to prepare for the question I, I think I'll do pretty well in the pub quiz now when the pubs reopen. So we're talking about the end of the world and disasters so let's talk about James Cameron's Titanic as a side note, the studio actually wanted Matthew McConaughey for the role of Jack, and it was Cameron that insisted on DiCaprio. There's another little nugget for you. What I want to know is, what is the significance of the running time of this movie? And that's it. So that question will be posted on our social media channel. So if you do want to get involved, look us up on Facebook, which is forward slash seen this pod. Instagram, also forward slash seen this pod. And if you want to find us on Twitter, we are forward slash seen this underscore pod. Just, you know, add a little spice to the mix there. That's it. That's all from me. Paul, Ben, thank you very much. Sweeney, so, so good to see you. Looking fabulous as always. Yeah, let's hope at some point when we can actually be released from our houses, we can all meet up and actually have a proper beer face-to-face -face somewhere. But thank you very much. And uh, yeah, over to you guys. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been um, less traumatic than I thought it was going to be, although you've dredged up a lot of memories from my past, like when the wind blows and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, thanks. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, so everybody, thank you as always for listening. Uh, Mr. Sweeney, thank you so much for being a, a fantastic guest. Uh, everybody, please be good. If you can't be good, be careful. Please be safe be healthy and we will speak to you again all very very soon yeah thanks everyone for listening to this point of the pod and cheers paul for coming on it was really great having you on and there's some great insights so yeah see you all in the next episode great and we'll see you on episode 12 you have been listening to have you seen this with paul green ben hammond and myself ben mercer the main theme is the godzilla theme tune remixed by myself with beats supplied by lander please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the pod and please check us out on facebook and instagram forward slash seen this pod seen spelled s-c-e-n-e all views and opinions are those of their hosts really bland game of stare is that what that game's called staring yeah. stare stare off stare <laughs> 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 I just got that just sounds weird. Is yeah. is it actually just called stare? Staring stare off. If I have a stare off with you, staring contest it is staring so it's contest. Too, it's staring contest. Staring yes, contest. It's like a really boring staring contest. Ooh.